everybody, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. So, so you're not going to ask me what we're talking about today? No, because to my understanding, we have these up already and, you know, it's a useless question at this point. Oh, wow. Somebody's feelings was hurt last uh, couple episodes ago. <laughs> Very much so. I had nine episodes of a thing going and that's been shot down. Well, far be it for me to ruin your thing you had going it's ruined just know that audience is ruined well uh, we can only do so much right now right now we get if we can and you know what you know i'm feeling generous okay key what are we talking about today well today we're talking about our 10th episode 10 episodes the tenor tenor chicken dinner Oh my goodness. Rin Tin Tin. Episode X, everybody. 10 o'clock rock. Like, we are in the double digits. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is happening. And for our number 10, we're doing crimes that took place 10 years ago in 2010. Okay, yeah, okay. So as you can see, we have a little theme going on. Yeah, absolutely. So... 2010 was a year of things that happened. Absolutely. So, now, my crime is a financial crime. What type of crime is yours? Um, an educational assault. Okay, so, the only link to our crime is that they both happened in 2010. Absolutely. All right, well, do you have any anything else? to any any other chips on your shoulder no i think i'll just passive aggressively say him as we as i go along okay okay well i do want to shout out some listeners who have given us some good feedback tina in houston shout out tina in houston what's up and ua in greenville get well soon thanks for listening we appreciate you Absolutely. We appreciate you all. Thank you so much. Yes. And if you have any friends or family in any other country, please recommend them to listen. Absolutely. Let's get this widespread around the world. Yeah, we're trying to get worldwide over here. That's right. So, I guess now that we've gotten that out of the way, we can get into our stories. Gather around, children. It's time for a tale of crime. Now... A man walks into Quick Trip, a.k.a. QT. QT. Represent. Convenience store. Just off Interstate 80 in Des Moines, Iowa. It was a weekday afternoon, two days before Christmas. The hood of the man's black sweatshirt was pulled over his head, obscuring his face from two surveillance cameras overhead. Under the hoodie, he appeared to be wearing a ball cap. Over the hoodie, he wore a black jacket. Now, okay, it's Iowa. It's probably cold. It probably does need, you know, it probably wasn't too odd him wearing a hoodie, a hat, and a jacket. So, I'll give him that. You know, it might have been cold. It was December. It was right before Christmas, so. Right, right, right. Real quick, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Des Moines? Is that that's how you pronounce that? Yeah. That's the one that's like, it looks like Des Moines? Yes. Des Moines? Yes. All right. You may continue. 
The man grabbed a fountain drink and two hot dogs. Two? Yeah. Now, that's not the crime because QT hot dogs are actually really good. Yeah, that should be a crime, right? Yeah, and their beef. Check that out. Check that out. Anywho, the man pulled two pieces of paper from his pocket. They were play slips for Hot Lotto, a Powerball-like game available in 14 states in Washington, D.C. A player or the game's computer picked five numbers between 1 and 39, and then a sixth number known as the Hot Ball between 1 and 19. The prize for getting the first five numbers right was $10,000. But the much larger jackpot that varied according to the number of players who bought tickets went to anyone who got all six numbers right. The jackpot at the time of this video, which was December 23rd, 2010, was approaching the largest jackpot in Hot Lotto prize history in Iowa, which was 16.5 million. Wow. Yeah. So the stated odds of winning it were 1 in 10,939,383. And there's not too many. Well, I guess across all those states that are probably. That's, that's, no. So out of 14 states, you don't think over 10 million people would have played it for 16.5 million? Not 10 million because, like, you know, we got the Mega Million and Powerball, but. Huh. It's possible. Okay, so six days later, the winning hot lotto numbers were selected. Now, between. One in 39, what would be your five numbers? Let me see if you can get these. Okay. Um, give me a six. Eh. Give me a 17. Eh. Give me a 37. Yeah. Give me a 29. Boo. Give me a 19. Mm. <laughs> so, V would not have won the hot lotto. Yeah, I would have lost real bad. Really bad. He didn't even get one number. The lotto numbers selected were 3, 12, 16, 26, 33, and 11. I was close on the 3. And the 16. 16. Oh, man. The next day, the Iowa Lottery announced that a quick trip in Des Moines had sold the winning ticket. But one month after the numbers were drawn, no one had presented the ticket. Now, the Iowa Lottery held a news conference. Phone calls poured in. Dozens of people claimed to be the winner. Someone said they had lost the ticket. Others said it was stolen from them. But lottery officials had crucial evidence that wasn't publicly available. The serial number on the winning ticket and the video of the man buying it. So one by one, they were able to cross off the prospective claimants. Three months after the winning ticket was announced, the lottery issued another public reminder. Another followed at six months and again at nine months, each time warning that the winners only had one year to claim their money. Then November 9th, 2011. A man named Philip Johnston, a lawyer from Quebec, 
called the Iowa Lottery and said he was the winner, but he was ill and requested that a check was sent in the mail. Now, he gave Mary Neubauer, the lottery, the Iowa Lottery Vice President of External Relations, the correct 15-digit serial number on the winning hot lotto ticket. Neubauer asked his age, in his 60s, he said, and what he was wearing when he purchased the ticket. His description, a sports coat, a gray flannel dress pant, did not match the Quick Trip video. Then, in a subsequent call, the man, Mr. Johnson, admitted he fibbed and said he was helping a client claim the ticket so the client would, wouldn't be identified. Now, this was against the Iowa Lottery rules, which requires identity of winter winners to be public. Why? I don't know. Like, why would you want the identities to be public? Yeah, like someone you just won sixteen million dollars. Why would you want everyone to know exactly who won? Right, like that seems dangerous. That seems very dangerous. So this is a requirement in Iowa. Johnston floated the possibility of withdrawing his claim, so that made Newbauer suspicious. The winner's anonymity was worth sixteen point five million dollars. I don't know. Would you let people know if you won sixteen point five million? Would you? If I had, if I had a plan to leave the everything, then yeah, sure. Like you know, if I can get immediate like, like extraction off the country, <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, we know if we never hear from V again, what happened? Yeah, you can get my name if you want to. I'm be gone. Now, one year to the day the winning lottery numbers were drawn by the random number generator computers less than two hours before the 4 p.m. deadline. Representatives from a prominent Des Moines law firm showed up at the lottery headquarters with the winning ticket. The firm was claiming the ticket on behalf of a trust. Later, the Iowa lottery learned that the trust beneficiary was a corporation in Belize whose president was none other than Philip Johnston, the Canadian attorney. He's the president of Belize also? Of a corporation in Belize. Okay, I was about to say, like, what? <laughs> what? He's a Canadian attorney. He's the president of Belize. Yeah, he has a who, lot going on. Who is this man? Now, this drew a lot of suspicion. So much so that the Iowa Attorney General's Office and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigations opened a case. Like, they just would not let anybody claim this ticket in peace. Like, they really wanted to know who bought this ticket. Why did old buddy wait 11 months to get his lawyer to reach out? Anyway, that's, that's too long of a time. Right, and then claimed it on the day it was going to expire, two hours before the expiration. Yes, yeah, that's how you know some fish is going on here. Now, in an interview in Quebec City, Johnston told the investigators that he had been contacted about the ticket by a Houston attorney named Robert Sonfield. Johnston also pointed investigators toward 
a Sugarland, Texas. Sugarland. <laughs> Sugarland. Yes, that's where they produce Imperial Sugar. I used to work there. Shout out. Shout out. Businessman named Robert Rhodes. A road trip to Texas by Iowa investigators proved fruitless, though. During their several days there, both Sonfield and Rhodes managed to avoid them. Now, on October 9th, 2014, nearly 46 months after the man in the hoodie left the QT, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigations put out a release that included a link to a 74-second clip of the surveillance footage. What's that, what's that going to do? Now, keep in mind, they wouldn't give Johnston the money. Right. They wouldn't give the Des Moines lawyers the money. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't, didn't deposit it into the trust. Right. So, this was a 2010 drawing. 2014, nobody still has the money. Like, Iowa has the money still. And they are still investigating this to find out who bought this ticket. They just, they were a dog with the bone on this one. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. That's crazy. I could see if they actually paid the money out and felt it was fishy. Yeah. But they, they were suspicious from the jump, so. In Des Moines, a web developer at the Iowa Lottery who watched the video recognized the voice. It belonged to a man she had worked alongside for years. Eddie Tipton. Eddie Tipton. Now, now I know people probably thought I was going to say Philip Johnston. But no. Eddie was a big friendly figure around the office at the Multi-State Lottery Association. He grew up in rural Texas. And he was always in his room fiddling with his computer. Now, that gave him like more of a insight to computers and software and things like that. So in the early nineties, Tipton was hired by Robert Rhodes to work for his software developing company, Systems Evolution Inc. So if you remember, Robert Rhodes was one of the people named by Philip Johnston as the Sugarland Lothario who had the the ticket. Now, he left uh, Systems Evolution Inc. in 2003 after being offered a job by the Multi-State Lottery Association. At this point in 2010, actually probably in 2003, his life revolved around his job. The Multi-State Lottery Association was a small organization and Tipton felt overextended. This is what he did. He wrote the random number generator software. He worked on the web pages. He handled the network security and the firewalls on top of what his actual job was, which was to review review security for the lottery games in nearly three dozen states. He was putting in 60-hour weeks and staying in the office until 11 p.m. And you know what happens when people feel overworked and underpaid or underappreciated yeah they started to do they started to take matters into their own hands so tipton's series of frauds started in the year 2005 he was one of the few employees who was allowed access to the random number generators computer since he wrote the software 
and that's what was used in the drawings. He installed some self-deleting software code and he initially set three conditions to test his virus. These were the three conditions. The drawing must take place on May 27th, November 23rd, or December 29th. The draw must take place on a Wednesday or a Saturday. The draw must take place after 10 p.m. local time. So it was highly specific. He couldn't just, you know, the software couldn't just generate numbers whenever it felt like it. It had to meet all three of these requirements. So after he installed the code, he waited for the lottery draw to match the conditions. And soon after, a drawing for $4.8 million took place in Colorado on November 23rd, 2005, a Wednesday. The malware lowered Eddie's odds from picking the winning numbers from 1 in 5 million to 1 in 200. Eddie gave his brother, Tommy Tipton, a set of numbers, well actually sets of numbers to play. Now, at first, Tommy was hesitant, and he consulted a friend who was working in Texas as a defense attorney. His friend encouraged him to play the numbers because he couldn't find any reason it would be illegal to play numbers given to him by a Lottery Association employee. Thus, Tommy purchased the numbers and asked his friend, Alexander Hicks, to claim the winnings in exchange for 10%. So that went off with a slight hitch, like actually two other people picked the same winning number. So the pot was split three ways. Whoops. But it, I mean, 4.8 million, they still got a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. So after this, since I guess his brother was kind of so standoffish, Eddie approached a former colleague and close friend, Robert Rhodes and partner with him. He won about seven hundred eighty three thousand two hundred fifty seven dollars in 2007 and created a limited liability company named Delta S Holdings LLC to collect their winnings. Now, over time, this little self-deleting code virus that he created allowed him to hijack at least five drawings, five winning drawings totaling more than $24 million in prizes in Colorado, Wisconsin, Iowa, Kansas, and Oklahoma. That's crazy. The biggest lottery scam in U.S. history. That's insane. But Eddie's downfall would come on that fateful December 23rd day. Now, of course, he won when he bought that ticket at QT. And he told his friend Robert Rose that he could claim the ticket if he wanted to, but not to wait until the last minute to collect the prize because that's when it has the most scrutiny. So back to the firm that was claiming the ticket on behalf of the trust two hours before the deadline. Again, Iowa law requires winners' names and addresses and addresses to be made public <laughs> if they win the lottery. What? Who? Whose rule is this? It makes no sense. Why would you, you... <laughs> say, hey, Key, 
who lives at 123 Main Street, just won $16.5 million, go to her house and congratulate her. Like, right. Who, I mean, who like, does that? I mean, like, if it's not information you can get from the internet, you shouldn't be, like, they, 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 they shouldn't be able to share it. Like, if you can't go on your Facebook page and see, well, you can see your name, sure, but you can't see your address on there. That's right. crazy. How is Facebook more secure than the Iowa Lottery? Right. So, they refused to pay out the $16.5 million. And the mystery over who was behind the claim dominated the newscast for weeks. So, like Eddie had told him, don't wait to the last minute. There'll be too much drama. He did it anyway. What happened? What happened? But despite this intense scrutiny, it would take investigators roughly three years to connect Tipton to the hot lotto rigging. In November 2014, about a month after the video, the Quick Trip video was released, police interviewed Eddie Tipton. Because remember, somebody who worked with him recognized his voice and she ended up reporting it. At first, he denied being the man who bought the ticket, claiming he was in Houston. But what he didn't know was that the police had a phone recording confirming Tipton was in Des Moines that day, in addition to that QT video. On January 15, 2015, he was charged with two counts of felony fraud. He later faced other charges, mostly related to money laundering and fraudulent wins in other states. Both his brother Tommy and his friend Rhodes were also charged with felonies relating to the rigged drawings. Rhodes pled guilty to a felony charge of being party to a computer crime and was sentenced in March 2017 to six months of home confinement and ordered to pay $409,000 in restitution. Oh. He agreed to testify against Eddie and Tommy Tipton as part of his plea deal. So Tommy and Eddie pled guilty to the additional felony crimes related to the rigging scheme again in June 2017 and agreed to repay $2.2 million in restitution. Now, Tommy admitted to claiming prizes in Colorado and Oklahoma using the numbers Eddie provided. He was sentenced to 75 days in jail. Eddie was sentenced in August up to 25 years in jail. Now, in his confession sessions, Eddie outlined three key mistakes that helped bring down the decade-long scheme. He does love threes, doesn't he? So, Tommy, his brother, attempted to exchange cash for unmarked bills in one of his schemes which was very suspicious but Tommy got out of it when the FBI caught wind of this because he had over $400,000 of bills that had consecutive serial numbers now that's how the lottery paid it out he attempted to exchange them for unmarked bills and the guy who he was trying to get to exchange it reported him to the FBI. Did he, he go to a bank? I believe so. Okay, I know how that works then. Yeah, so when the FBI 
came to question him about why he had so much money with consecutive serial numbers and why he was trying to exchange it. He said that he had won the lottery when he was on a trip because he's an avid Bigfoot hunter. And he name dropped Bigfoot. So he said that he was on a trip to Colorado on one of his Bigfoot hunts, which was true. That's why Eddie gave him the the numbers because he knew he was going to Colorado. And he was like, I just stopped. I played the numbers and I end up winning. And my wife is super Christian and she doesn't like me playing the lottery. So I didn't want her to know where I got all this money from. So the FBI made fun of him for being a Bigfoot hunter. Yeah, you got you to gotta blame him. <laughs> You gotta blame him for that. And they accepted his story and let it go. So, Eddie said that was one of the first mistakes. He admitted that his purchasing the lottery ticket himself was the second mistake. Absolutely. Because as an employee of the Multistate Lottery Association, he is legally not allowed to purchase lottery ticket yeah that makes sense i was i was thinking that makes sense and he said his third mistake was playing in iowa where he said security is tighter than in other states mainly because lottery security staff are all former law enforcement officers Hmm. but i think he made a fourth mistake too hot take (laughs) i think he a should have had a personal limit like if it gets over five million dollars i won't get the ticket okay so actually i have a list of mistakes he made okay so he should have set a limit like in order to not be so suspicious i won't try to claim if it gets over a certain amount of millions because i think you know had he kept it low yeah, it would have been more like, a, oh my gosh, like, what are the chances? Versus right. like, wait a second, that's the highest it's ever been. How did he win that, like, so fast? Right. So, I think that was one. Two, trusting Rhodes. Because he told Rhodes, don't do this at the last minute. Once it got to, like, three months, six months, he should have been like, don't claim this. We'll do it again on the next one. Just don't. He should have made that very clear. Yeah. Him letting Rhodes drag this out until two hours before the deadline. A year later. Got him caught up. Got him caught up. It made it super suspicious. So I think that was another mistake he made. He should have sat down with everybody he was going to involve in the scheme. His brother, his friend, whatnot, what have you. Been like, these are the rules. We can't get it if it's over this certain amount. We have to claim it within six months. Don't tell nobody. Which they did a really good job of. Yeah. They kept it secret. And don't do all this weird, suspicious stuff like getting people in other countries to try to claim it anonymously. Yeah. And then admitting that they're lying and all of this. Now, so. He'd be like, Tommy, you're only, you're the only one with a solid story. Tell him the Bigfoot thing, they'll let you go. I promise you. Right. And then they accepted it. Like, you know, he had his friend claim it, like, in another time. Like, he, Tommy was on point. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna have to do that for, like with UFO things. <laughs> like if I get caught doing anything, I was like, oh, you trying UFO sighting? Haven't you seen them? You've seen them, haven't you? You know, go just go crazy on them. So, this is what Eddie Tipton said. I'm saying at the time, I did not think it was fraud. He told federal officials. I thought that me writing that code and putting in an extra algorithm in there and sending it off to the gaming labs and them giving it the stamp of approval will resolve me of any problems. Okay. That was his logic. So he's saying, okay, I I made this algorithm. I know it can cheat, but I'm going to send it to the gaming lab, and if they don't catch it... Free game? Hey. Now, as of the time of this source, he had paid $25,000 of his restitution. And he is still currently in jail. He's currently still in debt, too. Yeah. And that was my 2010 case, the hot lotto robbery, which technically wasn't a robbery because they didn't get the money. But it did kind of trickle down to, okay, they had been doing this in multiple states, so they really were robbing the lottery. Just not that sixteen point five mil. Right, right. Oh my gosh, that's that's a crazy case. Like that's the biggest. You said biggest lottery fraud in history. Oh, well, in the U.S. Yeah, because they were doing it for so many years and they won so many jackpots. That's crazy. That is. But I oh, I love crimes like this. Like I am so much more of a financial crime person than because I I just I just feel like one day I might, you know, be the one. Yeah. To win the lottery. Oh, okay, I was about to say, don't say that, like on. Oh no, <laughs> I I'm not about that life. I okay. can't. I will not make it in jail. I know already. <laughs> good, 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 good. No. So that's off the table. Like you know, you're not you're not doing the wink, wink right now. You're oh, saying no. like one day you will win the lottery and like you're not be from some like crazy. No, I I know. I got my my things on point. I know, like get a lawyer, open a trust. Make sure you play it in a state that will allow anonymity. Yeah, right, right, right. Definitely. And then you also, I'm sure you're better at guessing numbers than I am. Well, I don't know, because I've played the lottery a couple times and never won, so maybe not. Yeah, I, I did it on my 18th birthday. I got, well, I just got like, you know, a scratch off and didn't win immediately, so that was a sign to me. To stop playing altogether? Yeah, because <laughs> like, you know, I can save those $10 every, every time I have an urge to do it and just buy something else or just put it in the savings account wow i've never like bought a ten dollar scratch off no no like i've had um my friend in houston shout out to edwin my work bay shout out to edwin i met you we had mexican food he used to buy lottery tickets all the time and like give them to me we would like scratch them off in the car and be like you know if we win we'll split it or we would like uh play like uh the powerball together yeah and so we would like jointly pick numbers. Like I pick my numbers, he picked his numbers. Then we jointly pick numbers together. Yeah. And one time we played, uh, we didn't win anything on the Powerball. We didn't win anything on the scratch offs. We went to casinos together, won very minimally. Mm-hmm. But it was always a good time. Yeah, right, right. It's about having fun, you know. Don't take it too seriously. Don't pay your life savings into gambling okay. at all. It's an addiction. It is. So, you know, of all the times Edwin and I played together, we probably won a collective $5, but it was <laughs> <laughs> it was the, the memories that count. 
Well, well, Key, that was a very, very interesting case. Very cool case. Well, thank you. Computer guy, the computer guy didn't come out on top. You know, he was doing the bad. He was doing bad stuff. So he got what he deserved. Now, my case is a totally different direction. Like you said, the only thing that relates with these cases is that they both take place in 2010. My case is about the shooting at Alabama University. So, this case revolves around Amy Bishop, who is a Harvard-trained neurobiologist. Amy Bishop... She's smart. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She, she, she's smart. Amy Bishop was born April 24th, 1965, and she grew up in Massachusetts, completed her undergraduate degree at North Univer- the Northeastern University in Boston, where her father, Samuel Bishop, was a professor in the art department. She earned her PhD in genetics from Harvard... And um, after that, and her 1993 thesis at Harvard was titled The Role of Methosaxton, PQQ, in the Respiratory Burst of Pygocytes. And it was 137 pages in length. Wow. Like, that's, that's a lot of writing. Is, if, that's what, if that's what big colleges, like, need, then, yeah, I couldn't do that. Yeah, PhDs take a lot of work to earn that doctorate, yes. Oh my gosh. Well, she she pretty much wasted hers. Oh, Amy. <laughs> her, research, her research interest included the induction of adaptive res- resistance of nitric oxide in the central nervous system and utilization of motor, motor neurons for the development of neural circuits grown on biological computer chips. She published at least four scientific articles between 1994 and 1998 as lead or co-author. Man, she was, like, really smart. Oh, yeah, she's real smart. What a shamey. Don't. Ever. Oh. Again. My bad. She joined the faculty of the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Alabama, UA, in Huntsville, in Huntsville as an assistant professor in 2003 and was teaching five courses prior to the incident. Previously, she was instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Bishop and and her husband competed in a technology competition and developed a portable cell incubator, coming in third and winning $25,000. Prology Biosystems, where her husband was employed, raised uh, $1.25 million to develop the automated cell incubator, Although some scientists consulted by the press declared it was unnecessary and too expensive. So from what her friends and like, you know, colleagues have said about Bishop is that is that she was kind of strange. You know, she was kind of like, you know, out there in a way. She had these bizarre tangents that she would just like, you know, that she would like be kind of crazy about. I don't think that was it. I think maybe she was just so smart, they just weren't on her level. I mean, it's possible because, like, you know, for a lot of smart people, they get frustrated when someone doesn't understand them. Mm-hmm. And so, and so if, if you're, if you're, like, a really good mind and, like, everyone around you just, like, uh, then, like, you're just going to be, like, oh, you don't get it. Like, it's this, 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 this. Like, you're going to seem like you're freaking out, but in actuality, you're trying to dumb it down and you're just, like, you know, being frazzled by everything. Yeah, I think that, you know, maybe weird isn't the right word. Maybe she was just overly smarter than you people. How you about that? How about that? So, um, one of these colleagues was a member 
of Bishop's tenure review committee. Her tenure was denied by the school. So this is going to be her last year teaching there. Amy's tenure? Yeah, yeah, her tenure, yeah. The end of 2009 when that happened, and it was like, you know, being declined through, through that time period. So now we're into the crazy stuff. February 12th, there was a faculty meeting that was held. It was, um, it was in room 369 on the third floor of the Shelby Center for Science and Technology, which houses the University of Alabama's biology and mathematics departments. She was normally a vocal participant in the departmental meetings, but on this occasion, she was silent and she appeared to be brooding. There was an obvious explanation. A year earlier, the department had declined Bishop's bid for tenure. And in her protracted and increasingly desperate efforts to appeal, the decision had been fruitless. Wow. So I know she was like upset because tenure is like when they can't fire you, like you are in there for life. Right. And when the semester ended, she knew her job would end as well. And so for the most part, she didn't even have to be at this meeting, which was another part. She didn't, she didn't, this, this meeting didn't really pertain to her because like, at the end of the semester, like, someone else is going to be the kids' professors. So, why, why am I even here? Bishop sat quietly in the meeting for about 30 or 40 minutes before pulling out a 9mm handgun. What the? This has escalated. <laughs> this story has taken a sharp left turn. Yeah, she flipped out. According to a faculty member, Joseph Ng, an associate professor who witnessed the attack said she suddenly got up, took out a gun, and started shooting at each one of us. She started with the one closest to her and went down the road shooting her targets in the head. Whoa! Yeah. This is like... Slow, steady driving. Slow, steady driving. Turn, 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 turn! <laughs> <laughs> crazy so fast yeah it's like, it's like just like we we're saying like you know like 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 she's such a bright mind and for her to think like you know like these people aren't getting it and then her tenure like denial like she's like in alabama she's not home where where she knows where everyone knows she's a genius she's here she's like you people don't get it like this is this is absurd like like i cannot believe this is happening i'm just gonna kill you all according to another survivor deborah moriarty who was actually, who was actually Bishop's friend on that tenure committee that d denied it? Right. Her account was this wasn't this wasn't a random shooting around the room. This was execution style. Those who were shot were on one side of the oval table used during the meeting, and five individuals on the other side, including Ing, and they all dropped to the floor like they all like you know like tried to hit the, hit the, hit the dirt pretty much. Right. After Bishop fired several shots, Moriarty said so. Moriarty crawled to bishop's leg and was pleading to, for her to stop bishop pointed the gun at her and pulled the trigger only to hear a click oh my gosh and the gun either jammed or ran out of ammo in in moriarty moriarty described bishop's uh, like appearance as angry and then and then following the apparent weapon malfunction perplexed and then they just pushed her out the room Oh my gosh. 
this is I am just I'm perplexed <laughs> like she just sat through the meeting listening like was this her plan all oh my gosh okay keep going okay all right, so um, so so I, so after she was pushed out of the room, she ran, she ran down to the second floor, went to the bathroom, washes with blood off her as she could because you know she, it's in a meeting. So whoever she shot, the three people she killed were point blank; they were right next to her. Oh my gosh! She she ran to the bathroom. She went to the bathroom, second floor, washed off her hand the gun, threw the gun in the trash, went to his student and asked to use his phone to call her husband. Uh, Bishop, she did not have any kind of concealed weapons permit, which was required by law. And um, and when the police got on scene, she was still in the building, and she was she was arrested like outside the building, like immediately. And and after she was arrested, she was quoted saying, "It didn't happen. There's no way." And when she was asked about the deaths of her colleagues, Bishop replied, "There's no way they're still alive." Wow. So she was just like, she snapped. Mm-hmm. But. I mean, do you call it a snap if you bring a gun to a meeting? Right, no, it's like, def- that's definitely like planned. That's definitely meditated. Premeditated? Premeditated, yeah. But you know they say like, when you, like, you know, your brain will, like cognitive dissidence, I think is, no, no, that's not the right term. Dissociative. Mm-hmm, yeah. Like your brain will, like, dissociate what you've done with the horrors of what has happened. So you're like, oh, no, they're they're just laying on the floor. Yeah. They're fine. And they just interviewed Bishop's husband, and after it was determined that she called him to pick her to pick her up after the shooting, they did not charge him with the crime. But the neighbor but the neighbor revealed in later interviews that he saw the couple leaving their home with duffel duffel black duffel bags on Friday afternoon prior to the shooting. Anderson revealed that his wife had borrowed the gun used in the shooting in that he he had escorted her to an indoor shooting range in the weeks prior to the incident. So, my question is, did he know her plan, or did she just say, hey, I want to take this up as a hobby because I'm not going to have a job after, you know, a few months? That's... Yeah, yeah I wonder. I, I mean, well, well no, 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 because, I mean, she borrowed the gun, so he knows, he knows she was taking it to school. Wow, I mean, he seems a, a bit liable in this somehow. Yeah, but they didn't charge him with anything, oddly enough. Shortly after Bishop's arrest, people at the university's biology department expressed concerns to the police that she had booby-trapped the science building with a herpes bomb. Shut up! Oh my god, not a herpes bomb! Oh god, okay, go ahead. <laughs> Key, I try to find some really interesting cases. Like I try my best. This, this is interesting. The twists, the turns, the the arc in action. Yeah, there are ramps everywhere, explosions going off. This was edge of my seat. I want to know how this ends. She had previously worked with the herpes virus while completing her post um, doctoral studies. And in, in a novel she wrote described the spread of the virus similar to herpes throughout the throughout the world, causing pregnant women to miscarry. However, the police had already searched the premises, finding only a handgun used in the shooting. Well, I'm glad and also sad that there wasn't a herpes bomb. Yeah, that would have made for some good content there. Yeah, but I'm glad she didn't do like they 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 were acting like she was maniacal. 
and I don't I don't know I don't know like if she really was like I feel like she was hurt that they didn't want her to be tenured yeah oh yeah she was she was definitely hurt yeah but I don't think she was just like out and out crazy I think the the hurt plus the super high IQ brilliance just kind of made for a perfect storm of what happened. Yeah, a whirlwind of fuckery going on. Before her trial, um, of course, like evidence of her previous incidents came up. One of them including the shooting of her own brother, Seth Bishop. When Amy was 21, she brutally shot her 18-year-old brother, uh, Seth Bishop, in 1986 at their home in Braintree, Massachusetts. Okay, so I'll take back all my previous statement. She was crazy and maniacal. The incident in which Bishop fired at least three shots from a 12-gauge pump shotgun, one into the bedroom wall, one into her brother's chest, and one into the ceiling in the room while fleeing the scene. And then later pointed the weapon at a moving vehicle on the adjacent road and tried to get in the vehicle, which... And this was all classified as an accident by the Braintree police. One shot in the ceiling as she was running away was the accident. Everything else was super intentional. In statements to Braintree police that day, both Amy and her own mother described the shooting as accidental. After a brief inquiry into into the incident by state police in 1986, they repeated that the Braintree police department's initial assessment that a shooting was accidental and the district attorney Bill Delahunt, later a U.S. congressman, decided not to file charges. Detailed records of the shooting had disappeared mysteriously in 1988. The Braintree Police Chief Paul Frazier said on February 13, 2010, that the report's gone, removed from the files. So she killed her brother and nothing happened. She killed her brother and tried to jack a car and nothing happened. Wow. Let's skip down to one of her other interesting, her other interesting incidents. Let's talk about the pipe bomb incident. Yes, let's. (laughs) Amy and her husband were suspects in a 1993 letter bomb case. Oh, hold on. So he knew damn well what she was about to do at this meeting. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Paul Rosenberg, a Harvard Medical School professor and physician at the Children's Hospital of Boston, received a package containing two pipe bombs that failed to explode. Rosenberg was Bishop's supervisor at a Children's Hospital neurobiology lab. Bishop had allegedly been concerned about receiving a negative evaluation for Rosenberg and reportedly had been in a dispute with Rosenberg. Bishop resigned from her position at the hospital because Rosenberg felt she could not meet the standard requirements for the work. And according to documents based upon witness interviews, Bishop was was reportedly upset and on the verge of a nervous breakdown as a result. So she did not take rejection well. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So in her mind, if you reject me, I must kill you. If you reject me, you have to be destroyed. I wonder how she got to that point with her brother 
like what caused her to want to to kill him that's and then her mom just being like it was an accident like that's yeah there's no way there's no that's way that's weird like well, she obviously maybe, maybe her mom was afraid of her too maybe so but she obviously had a history of mental health issues oh yeah oh yeah and that's oh that's horrible just because she was smart it's like okay maybe i'm 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 putting together you know the dots are connecting to make a picture here keep going okay all right um let me see her husband her husband reportedly told a witness that he wanted to shoot stab or strangle rosenberg prior to the attempted bombing the husband denied that he had ever threatened rosenberg saying i wouldn't know the guy if he walked into a bar and allegedly this tip came into a tip line and the validation of the witness was never ascertained For investigators, the USPIS ATF investigation focused on Bishop and her husband, but closed without charges filed due to lack of evidence. At one point during the investigation, the couple refused to cooperate with investigators, refusing to open their door to search their home and to take polygraph tests. The chief federal prosecutor in Boston's U.S. Attorney, uh, U.S. Attorney Carmen Ortiz, reviewed the case following the shooting, but ultimately decided Bishop would not be charged in the bombing attempt. She determined that the initial investigation in in 1993 was appropriate and thorough. The case remains unsolved. Wow. I don't want to say this. I do not want to say this. But there's definitely some form of privilege going on and it's very, very, very whitish. Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't, I because I don't understand how how these cases can be resurfaced and still be like, nah, 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 nah. Because like you know, this incident of her killing three professors point blank and then shooting at the other professors in the school, that's just one thing. This bombing incident, oh, that pipe bomb, it was thorough enough. She didn't, I'm sure they didn't do that. Her shooting her brother, it was swept through. It, like, the, the, they don't, they say don't have the records anymore. We just not we can do about that. I don't get it. So her brother no longer being alive was not enough. <laughs> wow. Wow. I got one more incident for you. Are you ready to talk about the International House of Pancakes incident? Not IHOP. Yes, IHOP. Lord, 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 not IHOP. Fortunately for this one, though, in two thousand in two thousand two, Bishop was charged and pled guilty to a misdemeanor assault plus disorderly conduct and received probation for punching a woman who had received the last booster seat at an international house of pancakes in Peabody, Massachusetts. Over a booster seat. A booster seat. A booster seat. She needed some serious help. She really needed like a counselor, a therapist, some Prozac, something. She was way too smart to act like this. A booster seat at IHOP. Yeah, she, I mean, family, the family's trying to have, her and her family just trying to have, like, a nice little breakfast, lunch, whatever. 
And she over here cutting up. Over a booster seat? You know what? I'm I'm done with Amy. I am so done with Amy at this point. Hold on. Let, let, let me tell you a little bit about what happened there. So according to the police report, Amy strode over to the other woman, demanded the seat, and then launched into a profanity-laced rant. When the woman would not give up the seat, Bishop punched her in the head, all while yelling, I am Dr. Amy Bishop. Hold on. <laughs> what did you have to... What do you being a doctor have to do with you getting his booster seat? <laughs> Would have been my first question. <laughs> and number two, wait for another family that's using the booster seat. Obviously, somebody's going to get up and leave. You don't get up and leave, yeah. Like, calm down. Like, Amy was, as soon as something went wrong, she was on 10. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She was putting 20 on 10. <laughs> <laughs> she. He was like, I wrote a 300, I wore 137 theses at Harvard. You give me this seat right now. I've earned it. Huh. <laughs> Bishop's victim was identified as Michelle Jinka. And in the aftermath of the 2010 shooting, she declined to comment on the restaurant and incident saying, it's not something I want to relive. In addition to probation, prosecutors recommended that Amy attend anger management classes Although it was unclear whether the judge, in case, ordered her to do so, her husband said she never attended anger management class. First of all, husband, you're out here co-signing all her craziness. So don't try to backtrack. Be like, oh, well, she didn't ever go. Like, uh, you know what? I'm done with all these bishops. Keep going. Okay. All right. So now, now, right, now we're down to the end of it, of like the trial and the... Uh, Aftermath afterwards and everything. On June 18th, um, inside of her Huntsville jail cell, Amy attempted suicide. She survived and was treated at a hospital and then returned to jail. Her husband complained that the authorities did not inform him of the incident. In November of two, in November 2010, survivors of the of the university shooting, um, Lahey and Monticello filed lawsuits against Amy and her husband to recover damages. In January 2010, attorneys representing Davis and Johnson's family, that's the last names of the other two. No, no, wait, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. In, in January 2011, attorneys of Davis's and Johnson's family, the two of them who are murdered in the university, filed wrong for death lawsuits against Amy and her husband and the university. In September 2011, Bishop pled not guilty by means of the insanity defense. Well, since she got off on all these other crimes, I don't even know how she could even, like, think that would work. Because there's no basis to, like, she never went to her anger management. She's never been in therapy. She wasn't really committed, I mean, found guilty of any other crimes that she committed, which were all insane. Other than the the head punch one, she was she was right. I mean, she admitted she admitted guilt for that, but that seems more anger than insane. Yeah, yeah. The rest of them seem very insane that she got off with, and now she has like no basis to say, "Oh, I'm insane. Look at my history. I've been doing all of this stuff all these years. I'm crazy." Right. I mean, like, I mean, honestly, like with her mind, she, with her mind and her neuro like neuroscience background. 
she knows like the different kind of triggers to gain empathy or whatever. Like she like you know she. She, she knows how to trick people. In, 2000, in 2012, the spouse of one of the murdered researchers wrote a letter to the judge presiding over the, the case. In this letter, the writer indicated that the researcher's family had greatly suffered from its loss due to Amy's actions, but that the family did not see a benefit from the, not, from the loss of another life. In the response to this letter, Amy's lawyer offered to change her plea to guilty in exchange for prosecution not seeking the death penalty. On receiving this offer, Chief Prosecutor Robert Broussard con contacted and learned from the nine survivors that none of them wanted the death sentence for, for Amy either. On the basis of these opinions, Broussard decided not to seek the death penalty and Amy changed her plea to guilty. On, tw on September 24, 2012, Bishop was sentenced to life in prison. Good. She's behind bars now. And I hope she lives to like a ripe old age of like 150. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She was sentenced without possibility of parole at all, which is good because, you know. I hope she's there for a long, long time and miserable. This is the most ridiculous case I've ever, I ever stumbled upon. Well, let's uh, go ahead and bring, bring this back up because... That was just wild. <laughs> I'm so glad you got to go through those twists and turns with us. Yeah, just, that was a lot. That was a lot. That was a lot. I actually have to um, give credit to my good friend, Jessica, for helping me find that case. All right, Jessica. Jessica is actually a college student, a college student herself, and um, I'm so glad I looked into that one because it was amazing. Just aiming is just insane all i could really say about that yeah that was that was crazy so let's let's end this on a happy note what, yes. what shall we end this with so uh that was 10 years ago mm -hmm. um while researching that i learned that the fbi cracked down on like uh the most cases they ever have in that year so that was good wow kudos fbi and it being 2020 there's we like, know you're no, listening if there be 2020, there's, you know, better technology to catch, like, fraudsters and murderers even quicker now. You know, there's better technology to find stuff that, like, alludes to evidence and better records to, you know, go off of. So that's really good, right? That's great. That's great for us law-abiding citizens. Yes. Yes. So I also want to throw out that, um, you know, right now... We are in the middle of a pandemic plague called the coronavirus. Co, wait, C-O-V-I-D-19. Yes. I have 25 pounds of rice and 100 sheets of seaweed as my stockpile for any possible two-week quarantine that we may undergo. Because I could literally eat rice and seaweed every day. That's pretty crazy. I don't have any food I can eat every day. Yes, rice and seaweed with butter and soy sauce is my go-to. Well, I'm glad you can deal with that. That does not sound appetizing to me at all. But we are very different people. We are. Very similar, but very different. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's my, you know... 
bring it up on a a higher notch, you know, go, go, don't go crazy. Just get you some staples you could live with for two weeks. Yeah. Stop hoarding toilet paper, people. Yeah, please stop. Like, it's not necessary. In, and I've, um, I saw some stuff on Reddit, um, some videos of people in Italy. They're out on their port, their balcony singing and laughing and dancing on their balconies. Like, you know, they're making the best of what, they, of what the situation is right now. Now, that's the quarantine I can get down with. Yeah, like, they're, they're all playing music and singing songs together. It's, it was so cool to see that. Oh, and speaking of my love for Asian food, because I am 856 Asian. Yesterday, my lovely, wonderful friend came down to visit, and we went to her mom's house, and her mom is Laotian, and she made my all-time favorite green papaya salad. It was wonderful. Thank you, Miss Sai. I love and appreciate it. And I, of course, had it with rice. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Of course. And times like those, right? Yes. That's awesome. Hmm. So, go out and try some green papaya salad if you never had it before. Yeah, yeah. At least, at least take on the endeavor. You know, go out and grab you some rice and some seaweed, some butter and some soy sauce, mix it together after the rice is cooked. Because I guess I should have gave some better instructions. Cook the rice, then put everything else in it. It's the bomb. You'd probably eat it every day, too. Probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I guess that's it for our Big Ten. That's it for Ten right there. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, everybody. Yes, (laughs) non-binary. Ten. It to win it. Well, here's the Ten and Ten more to go. Ten to grow on. Yes. Ten steps forward. Zero Zero steps back. Zero steps back. Zero steps back. Well, all right, everybody. I'm Keith. And I'm V. And this has been We Shouldn't Talk About This. Thanks for listening. Bye.